Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, 17 verses, 1 through 17. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when, when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is you know that what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now, Lord, that you would help me to preach your word. I pray that you would teach us and you would encourage us. You would help us to see that you are a great God who has given us all we need to know. And from this text, you've shown us how you will comfort us by sending your son. He will come again. God, I just thank you and praise you that this is uh, true. We can believe it. We can hold fast to it. So help us to do that, we ask and pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1994, Harold Camping, a former pastor and Christian radio host, predicted that the second coming of Christ would take place May 21st, 2011. As 2011 approached, more and more people tuned in to his prophecy. Many believed that the apocalypse, the end times, was drawing near. People sold everything they had, they left homes, they left families, they left jobs, because they thought the end of the world was coming. And Camping spent $100 million to advertise that May 21st, 2011, Jesus would return. I remember being a seminary student when this all happened, watching the hysteria take place. It was a news event covered all over the world. 
And while the secular media scoffs at this idea that somehow the world will end, right? They can't help but perpetuate the story. They keep talking about it, broadcasting about it. There was a palpable mania, craziness among believers and unbelievers alike as the irrational fear of what if this is true took hold of people's hearts. Well, May 21, 2011 came and went, and guess what? Nothing happened. Jesus did not come back. And Camping was interviewed May 22nd, the day after the prediction, and he said he was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe that he had been wrong. Well, our passage this morning tells us a similar story of the Thessalonian church. There are rumors circulating in the church that Christ had already come and that the beginning of the end was now in motion. And just like Harold Camping's deception, these rumors were unsettling many. In fact, it says they were terrified. They were scared. And friends, if you have read this particular chapter of 2 Thessalonians, maybe you haven't read in a while and I just read it to you the first time, you may be thinking, wow, what is that talking about? It does deal with eschatology, which is the study of the last things, right? So you have the book of Revelation also that's talking about the end of days, the day of the Lord. It is a difficult passage to fully interpret. It's not unclear. We can know what we need to know, but it is difficult to fully interpret. And really, this is to put it mildly, one scholar says that 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-17 through is probably the most obscure and difficult passage in the whole of Pauline correspondence. The great church leader Augustine, after wrestling with this passage, said, I frankly confess that the meaning of this completely escapes me. So, here I go into the fray to try and preach on it. I was helped greatly by one particular scholar, Jeffrey Wema. Praise God for gifted scholars who help organize the text. My goal this morning, as we deal with this difficult text, my aim is to show you that you can carefully read any difficult text. And through the Holy Spirit's help and using sound biblical reasoning, you can see what God wants you to know from His Word. Particularly, this word is a great comfort to us Christians, ensuring our salvation in Christ Jesus. What troubles your soul this morning? What is occupying your mind, causing you to feel mentally unstable? Is there, is there something in your life that gives you a sinking, gut-wrenching feeling of fear and dread? Is your hope fading for the future? Are you having issues in your job? Are you concerned about rising inflation, just eating away the purchasing power of the money you already have? Maybe you're thinking about the pandemic and it's just drug out for so long and if we have another wave, we just can't go through it. Maybe you're just getting on in years and you feel like there's more life ahead of you than there is behind. Are you fearing death this morning? The death that is going to come to all of us? Regardless of whatever trial, suffering, or pain, or sorrow, or injustice, or evil that you are experiencing this morning, I pray that this word from 2 Thessalonians 2 would comfort your soul. 
would quiet your noisy mind and ultimately that Christ would make his weighty peace rest in your heart. It's my prayer that the Lord would do that for us all this morning. So as we look through 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-17, through we're going to look at five stages through 2 Thessalonians. Number one, the crisis. Number two, the correction. Number three, the comfort. Number four, the command. And five, the closing. So let's look at first the crisis. 2 Thessalonians 1. What is the crisis? Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by the Spirit or a spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it seems that in the Thessalonian church, there are people who have come in who have brought a word or forged letter from Paul and the other apostles, and they have said, the day of the Lord has come. What does that mean? What is this day of the Lord? This is a term used in the Old Testament by the prophets and in the New Testament, and it refers to the return of Christ. The return of Christ is not this new concept in Thessal- in the, for the Thessalonians. The Bible's talked about it, right? Paul has already told them uh, what's going to happen in 1 Thessalonians when uh, the Lord returns, that they'll be caught up with him. But the news that the Thessalonians have received isn't merely to be ready for that day, that they should still be waiting for it. These people are saying it has already happened. And they're terrified. This phrase, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, means that they're scared out of their wits. But why is this so upsetting? Why would that be upsetting? Aren't they supposed to be looking forward to Christ's return? Shouldn't they be excited? Why such fear? How can they let this false claim of Christ's uh, Christ's return cause such mental and spiritual instability. Well, much of the uh, Old Testament prophets, when they talked about the day of the Lord, they talked about it as the end of the world as we know it. It's not just that Christ will return, it's that the day of the Lord also signals certain destruction for unbelievers. That God's righteous final judgment for those who fail to love Him is coming. And maybe they felt like they were afraid that this judgment was going to come upon them as well. You might say, hey, well, that's, that's irrational. God has promised to save his people, right? Trusting God. Yet this kind of fear isn't rational. Fear like this is a contagion. It's a disease. It spreads among a group of people. And the more people that are infected, the more people, more difficult it is to escape infection. I think this is what the Thessalonians are fearing. Christ has returned. Why am I still here? Why haven't I been taken up to meet him? Am I going to suffer the judgment that's coming on unbelievers? Maybe I am someone who is going to suffer that same punishment. Does this mean that I'm not one of his? That I'm waiting to be destroyed as well? And maybe this describes you today. You're here. Maybe you're a member of the church and you're a believer. 
but you feel filled with fear. There's so many uncertainties in this world, so many things, so many questions. You have the pandemic, you have the economic upheaval, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Maybe you're thinking, (coughs) what does this mean about the end times? Whatever that actually looks like. Maybe the future feels like an impending doom that's squeezing the joy out of your life right now. Or maybe you realize you've been that person spreading this irrational fear on social media or giving into fear and anxiety from the influence of others. <coughs> Excuse me. Christian, can I get the water from here? Time out, one second, sorry. Think about fear. for some of you fear is what you should be experiencing i mean that if you're here today and you don't know god do you know what awaits you when you die friend there's there is hope my fellow christian my unbelieving friend there is one comfort that will comfort and soothe your troubled mind and bring you to everlasting peace we're going to get there to that point soon. So we talked about this crisis among the Thessalonian believers. Now let's look at the correction that Paul has for them. The correction in verses 3 through 12. Paul warns the Thessalonians not to be deceived. They have listened to false reports, forged letters, and gossip-laden rumors that have led them to believe that Christ has already come. And Paul says, don't let them deceive you in any way. Namely, the day of the Lord has not yet come. Christ has not yet returned. And then he goes on to explain what is going to happen before Christ returns. First, there's going to be a rebellion. And the man of lawlessness, also called the son of destruction, will exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This man of lawlessness, son of destruction, is the Antichrist working under Satan's hand and points to a future rebellion where the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, is going to be revealed. Verse 6 makes clear that there's something currently restraining him so that he is to be revealed at a later time. However, lawlessness is working now, presently. And this lawless one is going to come by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and that the wicked will be totally deceived by him, and because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved, they will be destroyed. So I just summed up one of the most difficult passages in Scripture in one paragraph. I think we can all go home. I think we're done, right? We're good? You understand? Okay. That's a joke. No, it's very difficult still, right? What is happening in this particular passage? I think I can break it down. I think I can help us in three different parts. Number one, we have the coming of the man of lawlessness. We as readers need to understand, we are coming to this conversation in the middle of the conversation. In verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? In the middle of his explanation to the Thessalonians, why they shouldn't be deceived, he reminds them, hey, we talked about this. I've already told you about this. And if you read 1 Thessalonians, he talks about when Christ uh, would come, what that's going to be like. And you can imagine that Paul 
was there with the Thessalonians, and they had a lot of one-on-one conversations, and he was telling them in those one-on-one conversations, by the way, this is what the end is going to look like. Now, friends, you and I, we don't have that one-on-one conversation from Paul. What we do have is the exact teaching we were meant to have from Jesus. We have the Word of God, the Bible. Everything you need to know about the end times, right here. Notice what we do and do know and what we don't know, though, from this passage, right? We know that rebellion will bring the Antichrist, a man of lawlessness working in concert with Satan to lead people astray by false signs and wonders. We don't know when this will happen. Harold Camping didn't know. We won't know. We know that it's going to be in the future. But there's no way anyone ever is going to set a date to these events. We do know why this will happen. We know why this is going to happen. To bring final destruction on all those who have not loved the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The Antichrist is like this Pied Piper of Hamlin. I don't know if you ever heard the story of the Pied Piper. It's an old story from the Middle Ages about this man who played a flute. Uh, He was hired by this city in Germany to... Uh, basically be an exterminator to get all the rats out of the city. So he plays his flute, magical flute, and he leads all the rats out of the city to their death, to destruction. So too, this man of lawlessness sets himself up as God, exalting himself over every God, and by his magical flute, signs, wonders, teachings, leads people to their destruction as they rebel against God. God has made it so that those who are perishing are given over to a strong Delusion, so they may believe what is false. The sovereign God ordains that this enemy of God is ultimately fulfilling the very plan of God. Point number two. So we talked about the coming of the man of lawlessness. Now we talk about the destruction of the man of lawlessness. Christ absolutely obliterates the man of lawlessness by his breath. That's verse 8. So the man of lawlessness comes first, and then he, sh- he shows up, leads everyone who hates God uh, away, deeper into delusions. Jesus returns, and what does he do? Delivers the knockout punch to the man of lawlessness, which is actually a really poor illustration because Jesus doesn't need to even he doesn't need to swing his hand. He just merely exhales, it says. The, word, the, the breath that he exhales is going to kill the Antichrist, wipe him out of existence. It's like pitting an ice cube, the Antichrist, versus a volcano. You know, just drop the ice cube in the volcano. Which one's going to win? The volcano. Brethren and sisters, I want you to pause and think with me here. Think about what this text says. If there is any fear of the Antichrist, any concern for the schemes of Satan, if there's any inkling in you that thinks that Jesus' enemies can even stand up to him, please look at what this text says. Their doom is written. They are already defeated. Satan and all his minions live on borrowed time. Their destruction is coming. We trust in a God whose very breath is like the blast of a thousand supernovas against a paper mache cut out chump of a man of lawlessness. This is no fight. This is no struggle. It is done. 
what oftentimes gets missed in reading this by commentators and people who want to stir up in you fear, I think, is that somehow we need to figure out when persecution is coming. We need to figure out how this is going to affect us now. That's not what Paul's concerned about. Paul's concern is that we finish to the end and we know how it is going to end. That's Zechariah, that's Daniel, that's this passage, that's Revelation. All the apocalyptic literature. Yes, it's hard to understand. It's difficult to understand what are we really talking about, but that's this particular genre. What I mean by genre is the Bible's written in historical narrative. You have letters, like Paul's writing here. You have poetry, and you have a genre here called apocalyptic literature. Revelation, like I said, parts of Daniel. Pastor Aubrey preached through Zechariah. Parts of Zechariah is apocalyptic literature. And not to get too detailed into it, but it uses uh, imagery, it uses signs to describe things. And so you can read through the book of Revelation and you'll see all kinds of interesting things. Am I right? You like, you know, beasts and cups and bowls and wrath and lamb singing and all kinds of stuff like that. And you go, man, I don't know what any of that means, right? It's hard to figure out what exactly does it mean. But you know what happens in Revelation, right? The people of God are saved. The Lamb is exalted, Jesus, and he defeats Satan. You know what happens in Revelation. Apocalyptic literature is about giving you what is going to happen in the future without telling you everything that all the details of how it's going to take place. We know why it's going to happen. We have an idea of when in the future it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to happen. Jesus has not told us how exactly it's going to happen. We only have his word, which is sufficient and clear for us to understand. God's going to send, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to vanquish his foes and save his people. So that's the destruction of the man of lawlessness. Finally, we have the followers of the man of lawlessness. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about this man of lawlessness, probably because he gets killed. Uh, But what does he turn his attention to? Instead, he looks at the followers of the man of lawlessness. He focuses on these followers, followers who are perishing because, it says, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Why this shift to the man, from the man of lawlessness to the followers? I think the reason is that these people are the ones that are persecuting the Thessalonians in chapter 1. So if you were here this last week, Dr. Adam Brown was here. He was preaching from Thessalonians chapter 1. He was talking about steadfast faith in affliction. And one of the things he said is that when we, have, when we look to Christ and his return, we are awaiting uh, Christ's return and for him to deal with and bring judgment against those evil people. Here in chapter 2, this emphasis is that when Christ's return comes, he is going to bring that judgment. He is going to bring a right justice against those who have brought persecution against God's saints. We will be vindicated. God will punish our enemies, his enemies, and God will be proven just. So 
Friends, I have this question for you. Is this any comfort to you? Does this help you to know that Christ will return? And when he does, he will come for his redeemed people, yes, but he will also come in judgment against his enemies. You and I can rest in our Heavenly Father who will perfectly work out justice for his people and judgment for those who reject him. So when you are unfairly treated in your work, God sees, knows, and justice is his to complete. Many of you come from countries, places where the government is far from fair and just. Maybe some of you don't even want to go back, right? Well, God knows, sees, and will apply his perfect scale in meeting out justice on those governments. Whatever sorrow, whatever hardship, whatever ache, whatever pain, affliction, God is always making whole his people. And we'll do so finally and fully at the end of days. So we looked at the crisis of false reports for Christ's return. We saw Paul's correction for the church, namely that Christ has not yet returned. But when he does, he will, he will meet out his enemies and bring justice to his people. And finally, we get to the comfort that we should feel as God's people. Verses 13 through 14 remind the believers that they've been chosen and called by God for salvation by belief in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 13 says, But we ought, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul is rejoicing in remembering the Thessalonians, uh, the saints, for they have believed in the truth, received the word of God, and have thus been saved and sanctified by God. But think of this comparison between the unbelievers previously mentioned in verse 10. They refuse to love the truth. And have instead believed what is false, the unbelievers are consigned to believe this strong delusion from the man of lawlessness. But believers, you, you are called through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have believed. Where did this belief come from? Christ gave you that faith as a gift of faith to trust and believe in him, to believe the gospel. So rather than fear what the coming of the Lord might mean, what it might bring for the inevitable judgment that it will bring upon the unbelievers, you as believers should know God will save you. You will make it through because he has preserved you. He has chosen you. He has called you. So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are truly trusting and hoping in Jesus, know that you have been chosen, called, sanctified, saved, and that you will obtain the glory of the Lord. You will not be swept away by the man of lawlessness. Isn't that a great comfort? God does not leave us to fend for ourselves. You don't have to memorize all the apocalyptic literature in Scripture to somehow ascertain when the man of lawlessness comes to make sure that you can fend off any of his magic whistle movements. That's not what we're called to do. We have called upon the name of the Lord. And he has saved us. Our cry of faith to trust in Christ alone 
in his, in his perfect sacrifice on the cross is not some magical incantation that protects us. No, we are his, sealed, saved by God. We can do nothing to earn God's favor, favor and we did nothing of ourselves to earn God's love. And more than this, when, we, when the affliction and pain and sorrow and trials come, right? if the man of lawlessness comes tomorrow to Abu Dhabi and starts playing his tune, you should know you would be no less secure in your place with Christ than you are right now, than you were from the beginning when you first trusted in him. Nothing is going to move you when you are his. God is setting up this man of lawlessness only to knock him down. He plays a small part in God's majestic story of redemption, of him redeeming you and I. My unbelieving friend, if you're here with us this morning, glad that you're here. Are you not curious about how Jesus could promise such a great salvation as well his perfect protection? Do you long for comfort in a world that's filled with hard edges and pain and sorrow and really confusion? If you're not in Christ, then you should be afraid of the future. The future is scary. Judgment is coming. We have all sinned against a holy God, our creator God, and we deserve his judgment and punishment for our sins. But Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross, bearing the penalty of sin for all who repent and believe. This is you, right, Christian? If you've repented and believed, you've trusted in Christ, he has saved you. When we trust in him, not only are we freed from sin, but we are promised his protection an assurance of eternal comfort. So my unbelieving friend, I encourage you today, come, follow Jesus, repent of your sins, and trust in him. And he will save you, and he will give you this everlasting comfort. Ask anyone else in this room, any member, elder uh, here, ask them about the comfort they have received in Christ. And they will give you a testimony of what Christ has done for them. Crisis, correction, sweet comfort. And now we have a command. Because of all that Christ is for you and I, verse 15 says, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. Parallel this stableness of mind and heart compared to the instability in verse 2. Instead of being freaked out by these rumors and whispered words and these forged letters that come, hold on instead to the firm word of God, which you have already heard, which you've already received. How do you keep from thinking that there is not a sovereign God over your life working all things together for good? How do you keep mental sanity after two years of COVID masks social upheaval and war, you hold fast to the word that was delivered to you. Spoken before by the prophets from God, now, giving to, now given to us by his son, Jesus Christ. This means the false words that many in the world bring to Christians, uh, tempting you to believe them, you must ignore them. Technology has so unleashed so many ways, right, for false messages 
to spread. It's just never-ending. Social media platforms, Facebook Messenger. It goes on and on and on. And they all sit in your pocket and ding you, trying to get your attention to listen and believe them. These are fear and lies and deception. Your only defense against doom scrolling and the discipling of the world is to turn and hold fast to the word once and delivered to all the saints. And let me just say, if you're trying to fight a beautiful screen with all those dings and bells and whistles by kind of just trying to manage it, it's not going to work. You have to run to the word. You have to cling to the word of God. So many of the Bible, so much of the Bible talks about how the word is to be hidden in our hearts, how it's supposed to be buried deep into our psyche. And to do that, we must give it time and attention, meditation. We are to speak it to one another here in our services, after service, as we live our lives together as the body of Christ. Just let's look at what the Thessalonians are not to do. They are not to look at the future coming of the man, look out for the future coming of the man of lostness. Nowhere are we told, hey, beware, be ready when he comes, you know, what? Do what? No, he's going to come at a future time. You're not to be ready for his return. You're to be ready for Christ's return. They aren't to avoid the persecution that they are suffering under, right? Nowhere does it say, okay, try to not go through that suffering. There are no secrets in Scripture that they have to dig out to find about the details of the end of the, of the world. Friends, the word of God is sufficient for them and for you to keep us through suffering and sorrow, to stabilize us in the, through the coming storms, and to fill our hearts with a supernatural comfort that keeps our minds stayed on Christ. I'm going to leave you with this final part, this closing that Paul gives us. Paul doesn't just end with a passage, uh, this passage with a, a command, but with a prayer. His purpose isn't to beat these Thessalonians and to shame them for believing something wrong. That's not his aim. Sure, he means to correct them, but he does so with gentleness. He does so as a pastor to care for his flock. So that's what I want to do for you. I pray that you feel the pastoring from the Lord for your soul. As you think about the comfort that you need, that he has brought to you through Jesus. So listen to these words from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal, eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, great is this work that you have done. You sent Jesus to come, to die on the cross, Lord, to take away our sins, to, to bear our penalty, to provide for us a hope and a comfort that's far deeper than we can even imagine. Lord, we confess our hearts. It feels like we do everything we can to erode a trust in you. 
to bring our minds to disquiet, to make our minds unstable as we chase the things of this world, as we are curious about what this, what's happening over there and what it could mean for the end of days. Lord, when you have told us, you've spoken, that Satan will come, the man of lawlessness and his activity will come, but Jesus will destroy him. And we are on the side of our King Jesus, our champion. Remind us again of this truth, Lord. Help us to have a steadfast faith through this time of deception. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.